grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday is the celebration of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, We're going to look ahead in his last week of life to see the form that that triumph takes. It takes the cruciform form. Let me read again a little bit of our gospel reading. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would lead and guide us, that you would be with us, that he would be with us in whatever darkness we face. We pray that he would be with us so that we would not be forsaken. And we pray this for the exaltation and the glory of our Lord Jesus and for his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus enters Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week of his life. And he enters Jerusalem in broad daylight. Crowds greet him, crowds shouting, crowds waving palm branches, crowds taking off their robes and making a carpet for Jesus as he comes into the capital city. Jesus goes directly into the temple and he looks around and sees that the temple has become corrupted. It's been stained by the sins and the hypocrisies of the scribes and Pharisees. And he begins overturning the money changers' tables. And he demonstrates in the temple what the Lord is going to do to that temple in a generation. In a generation, that entire temple system is going to come crashing down. And Jesus gives a little preview of what's in store for Israel in the coming generation. And then during the last week of his life, he sets up his own ministry in the temple courts. Jesus teaches in the temple. Jesus heals in the temple. Jesus tells parables in the temple. Parables about the Pharisees. Parables that the Pharisees recognize as parables about them. Parables about tenants who lose their rights to a vineyard. Parables about a two sons of a father, one of whom obeys the father and one of them who does not. Parables about wedding feasts to which most of the guests refuse to come. Jesus is telling parables about the Pharisees who are sitting right in front of him in the temple courts and they recognize themselves in his stories and they want to stop him. They want to quiet him. And so they try to trap him. One after another, different groups of Jewish leaders come up to Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes. They all ask him questions. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words so that they can have something, anything that they can bring against him in the court. But each time they just dig a hole deeper for themselves. Jesus betters them in every public debate. And the Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees eventually, in embarrassment, just fall silent. All this is done in public, in the open, in the temple courts, as Jesus says 
to the Jewish leaders when he's put on trial. Why didn't you arrest me when I was teaching openly in the temple courts? Jesus' week, the last week of his life, begins in daylight. He ministers during daylight in the temple. But his week becomes a descent into the darkness. And by the end of the week, there's a growing, deepening gloom as Jesus moves forward toward the cross. Jesus eats an evening meal, his last supper, with the disciples. From the last supper, Jesus goes to Gethsemane at night. Jesus is arrested in the garden at night. Jesus is tried at night. And then the most uncanny darkness of all, after day has dawned on the day of his death, during the middle of the day when the sun is at its height, a darkness descends. And from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there's darkness over the face of the land. Jesus' progress through his week, the last week of his life, is a progress from daylight into darkness. What is darkness? What is darkness in the Bible? Darkness is the state of a world that has not yet been created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the world was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The creation week begins with darkness, and then God creates light, and it ends with glory and brightness. Each day begins with evening and moves toward the light. Darkness is an unformed creation. Darkness is a world that has not yet been put together, that's not yet been shaped and formed and filled. But darkness is also the state of a world that is descending toward decreation, that's descending toward nothingness, that's descending back toward the formlessness and emptiness of the original creation. This is what the prophets continuously warn Israel about. A day is coming, Zephaniah says, and it's not a day of brightness. The day of the Lord is coming, but it's not going to be the kind of day that you want. It's going to be a day, but it's going to be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, a day of destruction, a day of desolation. Darkness is a the coming of a world, uh, the ending of a world. Darkness is the beginning of a world before it's formed. Darkness symbolizes the descent of a world toward nothingness. The most utter darkness is the darkness that waits for all of us, the darkness of the grave. We're all moving from light into darkness. When Jesus talks about eternal death, he talks about it as the outer darkness. At the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us a little allegory of death. And he talks about the heavenly bodies going out, the lights going out, the clocks stopping. Each of us will end our days in the darkness of death. And Jesus hangs on the cross in the darkness. Creation, which was once dark and then moved to light, is moving back into darkness. Creation is moving in reverse. The world is being decreated. The world is coming to an end as Jesus dies on the cross. The clock is stopping for the Jews and the Romans and the rest of the world as Jesus hangs in the darkness on the cross. And out of that darkness comes a voice. This too is following the creation week. 
The creation week begins in darkness, and then a voice breaks out. The Lord speaks, and the first word he speaks is, let there be light, and there is light. With the calm assurance of omnipotence, God calls light into being, and light begins to shape a dark world. Jesus is on the cross in the darkness, and he too speaks in the darkness. But this is not like the voice that created light on the first day of creation. This is not a voice that has the calm assurance of omnipotence. This is a voice of terror. This is a shriek in the dark. This is much more like the terror of Egypt in their plague of darkness. It's much more like the loud voice during the night of Passover when the angel of death was spreading death throughout Egypt and a great cry arose from all the Egyptians. A voice in the darkness. A voice of lamentation. A voice of anguish. Israel has become an Egypt. Matthew told told us this at the beginning of his gospel. Israel has become an Egypt. And Israel's firstborn, like Egypt's firstborn, must die. Jesus is that firstborn. And although he's the firstborn son, the sinless son, he takes on himself the terror and the anguish and the lamentation of all the Egyptian Israelites that surround him, that are putting him to death. He takes their forsakenness as his own. And he cries in the darkness. Matthew records his cry in the darkness in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He does that so we understand the reaction of those who are at the foot of the cross. If he, if he didn't translate it, if he just put it in Greek, we wouldn't understand why people think he's calling for Elijah. When we read it in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, that's part of Elijah's name. And the Jews react by saying, well, he's calling for Elijah. What's going on here? Why do the Jews react that way? This is a quotation from a psalm. It's the beginning of Psalm 22. Surely the Jews who are at the foot of the cross have heard these words before. Surely they have sung them before. And yet when Jesus says them from the cross, they seem not to recognize what Jesus is saying. They get confused, it seems. And they hear, instead of Eli, Eli, my God, my God, they hear Jesus calling for Elijah. That would be perfectly consistent with everything else that's going on at the crucifixion. From the middle of the gospel story, Jesus begins speaking in parables because the Jews have become deaf. And he speaks in parables so that they are confirmed in their deafness, so that the deaf people of Israel become even deafer, more deaf. So those who have refused to hear are given over to their deafness so they cannot hear. Those who are blind to who Jesus is are given over to their blindness. And that's what's happening at the cross. The Jews are surrounded by signs that this is the Messiah. Jesus asks for a drink. I thirst. And he's given vinegar and wine to drink, just like Psalm 69 says. If the Jews would look off to the side, they could see the Roman soldiers taking Jesus' clothing that's been stripped from him and dividing his garments among them, just like Psalm 22 says about David. 
if they were thinking, they would realize that their mockery of Jesus is the mockery of the of David's enemies in Psalm 22. They take those very words of the mockers of David on their own lips. If they were only stopped to think, they would realize, if we're the mockers, then who must Jesus be? Jesus must be playing the role of David here. Jesus must be going through the same situation David is. They're not just blind or deaf to the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're deaf to everything. They're blind to everything. They're surrounded by signs that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is David's son. And yet they cannot hear or see. I think that's all true. I think the Jews have become hardened in their opposition to Jesus. They worship idols and they become like idols. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. But I think the Jews also, in some sense, recognize what Jesus is saying and are turning his words in mockery against him. They know what he's saying, but they're turning it to scorn. They know he's quoting from the psalm. But Eli sounds a little like Elijah, and so they're making fun of him. Look, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah shows up and rescues him from the cross. He hasn't been able to save himself. Maybe Elijah will descend, and Elijah will come and help him. They're continuing the mockery of Jesus that they've been uh, throwing in his direction since he's been placed on the cross. But it's more than that. It's more than about Jesus' personal deliverance. Elijah plays a prominent role in the hopes of Israel. Our Old Testament ends with Malachi 4 with a prediction that Elijah will come, as we heard this morning in the Old Testament reading. Elijah will come and will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Jesus himself says that Elijah is coming. Elijah has come. And when Elijah comes, he restores all things. The coming of Elijah is a sign of the coming of the kingdom. I think the mockery is not just, let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him from the cross. The Jews are mocking Jesus for hoping that his death and suffering will bring in the kingdom. That his suffering is the, are the birth pangs of the coming of the kingdom. That his sufferings will bring Elijah and all that Elijah represents the new creation, the new world that the Jews have been hoping for. Let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see if Jesus' sufferings and death bring in the ends of the ages. And the ironic thing is that it does. Everything that the Jews are hoping for happens after Jesus dies. Everything that they're hoping for happens either literally or symbolically at the moment Jesus dies after this cry that Elijah would come, that the kingdom would come. What are the Jews hoping for? Ezekiel and Joel and Isaiah had prophesied that the Spirit would descend and refresh the land. The Spirit would come and give them new hearts. And when Jesus dies, he yields up his Spirit, we're told. That's not just saying that he died. It means that at his death, he's passing on his spirit. He is indeed like Elijah, who gives a double portion of his spirit as he ascends into heaven. A double portion of his spirit he leaves behind for Elisha. The Jews have been hoping for the spirit. If you want the spirit, 
look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who received the Spirit in his baptism. Jesus is the one who heals in the Spirit, who resists the devil in the Spirit, who teaches with the power of the Spirit. Jesus brings the Spirit. He brings what what the Jews are hoping for. The Jews are hoping for an open temple. The Jews are hoping for life-giving water to flow out of the temple to refresh the land and to turn the Dead Sea fresh. And at Jesus' death, the temple veil is torn and a way is opened into the most holy place. It's a judgment on the temple. It means that the temple is going to be, it's a preview of the judgment that will later fall on the temple. But it's also a sign that Jesus, by his death, has made a way into the presence of God. We don't have to stand at a distance anymore. That's what the Jews want. They want to be in the presence of God. And it happens at Jesus' death. The Jews want the world to be shaken. They know that the world isn't as it should be. The Romans are in the high places of the earth. The Jews are serving them. Uh, The various promises of the prophets have not been realized. They want the world to be shaken so that only the unshakable things will stand. Haggai says this, Yet once more I will shake the world until only those things that cannot be shaken will stand. That's what the Jews want. And at Jesus' death, there's an earthquake. The world is, in fact, shaken. The Jews are hoping for resurrection. Ezekiel saw a great vision of a valley of dry bones, and those bones came together, and flesh came on those bones, and breath came into those new bodies, and that new Israel was raised from the dead, raised from the valley of bones. They're hoping for resurrection. And at Jesus' death, bodies come out of the grave. And many of the saints of old are seen in the holy city. Resurrection begins to happen at Jesus' death. The Jews are hoping for the conversion of the nations. And when Jesus dies, the centurion and all those who are with him, who are keeping guard over Jesus, see what happens. They see the earthquake. They see what happens in the temple. They see the darkness. And they say what the Jews cannot say. Truly this is the Son of God. Jesus enters into the darkness. Darkness is a world that was once created that is collapsing, that is turning back to chaos. Jesus enters into that darkness and speaks. And when he speaks in the darkness, a new world begins to take form. The world that the Jews have been hoping for. The world of the Spirit the world of resurrection, the world of the open temple, the world of the pilgrimage of the nations coming and worshiping at the temple of Israel's God. Jesus enters the darkness so that the darkness can again become light, so that he can recreate the world by a cry in the dark. But it is important to remember the differences between the original utterance of God at creation and Jesus' cry in the dark. As I said, the Lord speaks at the beginning with the calm assurance of omnipotence. Let there be light, and there is light. But Jesus doesn't overcome the darkness. Jesus doesn't begin to reverse darkness by speaking a word of calm omnipotence. Jesus doesn't flip a distant heavenly switch to turn the lights back on. Jesus enters into the darkness. Jesus takes the darkness as his own. 
and then speaks a new world from within the darkness. He begins to recreate by suffering our condition. When we think of the cross, we are often focused on the physical torments of crucifixion. And the physical torments of crucifixion were excruciating. But that's not where the focus is in the gospel story. There's very little attention given to the physical torments of Jesus. We know he was scourged. We know he had nails put through his hands and feet. We know that he was pierced with a sword. We know he suffocated to death on the cross because that's how people who were crucified died. But that's not the suffering, the the main suffering that the Gospels depict. The main anguish that Jesus endures is the anguish of isolation, the anguish of abandonment. It begins at the Last Supper. Jesus goes to the Last Supper with the twelve, but he leaves the Last Supper with eleven. Judas leaves before the supper's over. Jesus goes to the garden with eleven, and he takes three with him so that he can pray. They don't pray with him. They can't stay awake. And when the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, the remaining 11 abandon him. And so Jesus goes through his arrest and trial alone, forsaken of his friends, forsaken of his companions, forsaken of his disciples. That is the darkness that he enters. The little flock that has followed Jesus around is breaking into pieces. The body of Christ is being dismembered even before Jesus ever has a nail put into his hand. Jesus is already losing his friends and his companions. And then on the cross, he experiences the most absolute isolation. Jesus, the beloved son. Jesus, the eternal word of his father. That Jesus is forsaken by his Father and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not as if the Trinity, for a few moments or a few hours on Good Friday, became a binity, was reduced to two for a short time. But we shouldn't minimize the mystery. One of the Trinity the Son of God took our flesh. One of the Trinity, the Son of God, entered into our darkness. He took on our God-forsakenness fully in a way that we could never experience. He took on our condition of darkness and God-forsakenness. You ever felt God-forsaken? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt like there is no friend but darkness? Jesus actually experienced that. And if you feel like you're experiencing it, Jesus is with you. There is no darkness that you can enter. There's no darkness you can enter that's darker than the darkness that Jesus entered. There's no pit that you can go into that's deeper than the one that Jesus went into. Jesus has been there. And Jesus is there. You are not alone. Jesus suffered our God-forsakenness so that we would never be forsaken. 
so that Jesus would be with us to the end. But it's more than that. Jesus tells his disciples repeatedly, you've got to follow me. You've got to take up the cross. You've got to enter the darkness yourself. We'd like to remake worlds without doing that. We'd like to remake worlds by flipping a switch or having God flip a switch. We'd like to remake our disordered world by coming down from the cross, by having lives of light and happiness. It's impossible. It's not the way it works. Worlds are remade from the darkness. Worlds are remade. The world was remade once for all when Jesus entered the darkness and spoke in the darkness and began to remake the world from within. And worlds continue to be remade as we, in the power of the Spirit, follow Jesus into the darkness, sharing in his sufferings, sharing in his anguish, serving the world on his behalf, so that the light of God can illuminate the darkness, so that our cries of anguish can become a repetition of let there be light, so the God who created light can shine light into the utter darkness of a world that is moving toward nothing. Jesus calls us to follow him into the darkness. May God give us grace to take up our cross and serve him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you and thank you that you took on our flesh, that you took on our humanity, that you took on the fullness of our condition, and that on the cross you suffered our God-forsakenness so that we would not be forsaken. And you call us to follow you. We pray that we would be courageous in your spirit to take up your cross, follow you into the darkness, and bring light into the darkness as you have brought light into our darkness. We thank you for these things and we praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.